Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. What's made you who you are? It's a straightforward enough question, one that pops up more or less and with more or less urgency in most of our lives. And it's a question for which most of us have straightforward answers. Our families, usually. Maybe our teachers, or maybe some important personal event, the death of a loved one, the onset of a disease. Sometimes we may nod toward history, the Depression, the Vietnam War, the attack on the Twin Towers... If we grew up on the south side of Chicago or came of age on a farm in Idaho, we might see those places as crucial to the adults that we've become. These are the kinds of things we expect to find in memoirs, that genre that tries to make sense of our experience in all its vast, buzzing complexity and infinitely baffling richness, and tells us the story of a life. Not so with Nicole Walker's new book, Quench Your Thirst with Salt. Walker has written a memoir of sorts, but one in which she's invited in all of that buzzing and all that bafflement, with the aim not of telling the story of her life, so much as capturing the surprising nature of being alive. Walker takes this question, what makes us who we are, and looks in places we'd never expect. She finds, for example, that she can't fully understand how her father's excessive drinking has shaped her, unless she can also understand how water itself shapes us, how it literally is the material we are, and how the water she drank as a child in the Salt Lake Valley of Utah came to exist in a landscape that was once a desert. William Blake may see a world in a grain of sand, but Walker sees a self in a city's sewage system, an element of carbon, or the struggle of salmon making their way up a concrete spillway. Quincher Thirst with Salt is a mashup and shake-up of memoir, social history, nature writing, confession, chemistry, geology, collage, and brave speculation, all brought together by a lively wit. Nicole Walker, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Eric. It's great to be here. Uh, you are the author of a recent book, Quench Your Thirst with Salt, and I cannot wait to talk about that. Uh, it is a beautiful and powerful book, uh, fascinating and really something all its own. Um, but before we get to that, I'm just kind of curious if, if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what kind of writer eventually gets to this point, if we can know who's the person behind this book, I think it'll give us a better sense of, of how to go into it. Definitely, Eric. I mean, I think this book is made out of my uh, experiences and my attempt to reconcile, you know, what what my life was like and has become. So it makes sense to give some uh, sort of traditional background story. I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, to parents who um, had been baptized in the Mormon church, but were not, in fact, members of the LDS church when I was born. They'd moved to uh, New York City for a few years, and my dad went to Columbia. Um, But they came back because the engineering um, industry had been in a bit of a recession. So they came back and my dad found a job back in Salt Lake. They would have stayed in New York City their whole lives, I think, if they could have. So I grew up in the 
suburbs of Salt Lake City. And uh, when I turned 17, the first thing I wanted to do was get out of Salt Lake. I found it claustrophobic and uh, culturally stunted and um, repressive in a lot of ways. You know, I was a very rebellious teenager, listened to crafts and subhumans and all the punk rock music and wore safety pins in my ears for a couple years. Um, so I wanted out as fast as I could go. And I moved to Portland, Oregon, where I went to Reed College, where everyone had safety pins in their ears, or at least the equivalent of uh, in tattoos or um, wild haircuts, and felt, you know, fit in really well, I thought, in, at Reed. And it was the first time where I found people who were equally um, interested in intellectual stimulation with sort of political and rebellious tendencies. Um, so that was, it, Reed was a great experience, and I loved Portland, and I stayed and stayed in Portland. I got my degree in English, worked at a number of nonprofits, the Oregon Humane Society, where I was the computer guy, um, Oregon Wine Growers Association, where I was the administrative director for a while. You know, I popped around nonprofit to nonprofit, and that could have been my life for a while. But I really, you know, even after I graduated, continued to write and continued to try to get uh, work published. And I was dating a guy who was just graduating from Reed and he wanted to go to PhD school. And so we both applied and I said, yeah, sure. I'll go get my MFA. I'd really like to do that. And I'll come right back to Portland. So he applied and I applied. We both got into university of Washington and we both got into university of Utah. Um, but he decided not to go to university of Utah and I decided not to go to university of Washington. And so we parted ways and that this is insane that I decided to go back to Salt Lake City, this place I'd tried so hard to escape. Um, but Salt Lake had changed and I had changed and I wasn't so uh, narrow-minded in my own way, only seeing Utah from this very small perspective. But having come back from Portland um, and seeing, you know, even Portland, perfect Portland has, you know, different elements of, of political spectrums and different uh, different kinds of people living there. It wasn't just Utah that was uh, so conservative. And also, I, you know, one thing that's so great about Salt Lake City is the subculture is pretty intense. In a lot of ways, the subculture of Portland is the culture, right? And so you're not rebelling anymore. You're just kind of part of the regular people. In Salt Lake, there's still that, that sort of uh, unique element to uh, being different. And I like, I like that about Salt Lake City. And Salt Lake City proper was a uh, up and coming in a lot of ways kind of place. So I got back, got my MFA, met my soon to be husband and decided I would stay and I would get my PhD. And, uh, I stayed in Salt Lake for eight years. And finally, when I, uh, had to go, cause eventually you get a PhD and they want me to get a job and get out of there. I was heartbroken. It was amazing how, what a, uh, 180 I had made in my perspective about Salt Lake city and how much to this day, I still love that place. So I think that comes up a lot in the book, that difficulty of growing up in this hard place and having to leave this heart, this beautiful place. Um, it's a, it, the, the city is a place of contrast. The state is a place of contrast. And I think I, because I grew up there, I'm also sort of full of contrast. I think that it absolutely comes across in the book. And there, there's definitely a deep love for the Salt Lake Valley and the culture there. And I think I use the word love because it, if you use it correctly, it 
it encompasses the light and the dark. It's just not happiness and, you know, naturalist writing that's celebratory, but all the kinds of vexations and ambivalences that come through. Um, one of the things I, I certainly wanted to touch off on right from the outset and uh, want listeners to know is that even as we get this, this personal memoir of yours, which I think is completely apt for understanding the book, your approach is really to to write a memoir that places you as an individual person, as a self, as a body, most particularly in the landscape in indis- indistinguishable ways, really. It's as though it's, it's a history of the self and a history of the place simultaneously. Eric, I think you're absolutely right to say that's the, the attempt of the book and the attempt to encompass or bring in parallel the idea of the body being shaped by this culture, by her own experiences, by her boyfriends, her dad and her mom. And then this landscape that's so in some ways managed by these incredible people who were able to reconstitute mountain streams into valley parks and valley fields, valley agriculture. Uh, the, the shaping is, if you look at a, a human with that sort of distant perspective that you look at the Salt Lake Valley landscape, the parallels, to me at least when I was writing the book, were, were easy to make. And, you know, as I, I come to prose through poetry and that associative leap that you're allowed in poetry is sometimes not as embraced in prose but one thing and one of the techniques of the book is to is to toggle back and forth between stories of the self and stories of the landscape stories of of growing up and stories of the environment in a way that makes them not seamless because that would be that would be a lot you know there's a huge scene between these two things but makes them conversant with each other and in that conversation and it's only to me in that conversation that I arrive at any of the insights that I do you know if I tried to write the memoir just a straight memoir um, I don't think I would have arrived at any of the epiphanies if that's I don't know if they're epiphanies but at least any of the moments where I, I was astonished like oh I never thought of it that way without having the other story bear upon it, the story of the environment, the story of the landscape. And to me, even the process of writing or that form is another parallel, that by using these two stories to push against each other in the same way that the Salt Lake uh, or the Wasatch Fault pushes the mountains against the valley, or the way that the dominant culture pushes against a young girl growing up in this town, that, that the form itself pushed me in ways that allowed new ideas sort of to pop out. I think, I think this is a great moment to try to describe for listeners how the book works. Cause I think you're right that the, the, it's form enacts the way that it's approaching its subject. And when I try to describe it to people, I say things like, well, it's a collection of essays, but that won't tell you much. Maybe it's a memoir of a landscape or maybe it's a geological and cultural history of a self, uh, or maybe it's both or, or not, because sometimes you pop up in Minnesota. So how do you describe the book to, to readers who are encountering it for the first time? 
I, I love that idea of, of the of a geological history of the self, or a, a or a, a description of a, a memoir of the landscape. Those are exactly the terms I would use. And again, it's that idea of coming in from from two ideas, two contrasting modes. One is that desire, sort of, to confess and to and to figure out your your past through, uh, you know, with perspective, with some distance. But, you know, I guess I would describe the book as a series of vignettes, although that is one way to think about it because there are so many sections within each essay. But to think of it as a line, a through line, um, through which you could say, okay, this is, this is, this is the way pressure is building against these these two these these two ideas and that if we put enough pressure we will make some sense out of, out of things so it begins you know in pretty chronological order um, and you know uh, begins with me growing up and uh, finding out that my dad drank a lot more than I knew it uh, moves to experiences with that I had when I was really young with boys um, growing up in that having boyfriends uh, having them sort of dominate a lot of my ideas and a lot of my my thinking for a while until I sort of escaped that um, moving into meeting my husband and finally getting pregnant um, when I you know was in graduate school and so in a lot of ways it's traditional in its trajectory and then again it's like mountains being pushed up by uh, tectonic plates, up come these other stories, these other investigations or research elements. But to me, say, okay, but this is just one person's story in a you know in a million people's story. What makes it different, or what makes it what what allows me to approach this material in a way that leads me to new insights and hopefully the reader to some new insights? And by doing that, that. Pushing that the environmental story, I'm saying, you know, we're all part of this larger picture, and humans uh, uh, are part of nature too, and we are pushed by forces that we can't understand, uh, or we can only understand with some sort of study and perspective. In the same way, we can only st- understand the way, you know, an earthquake um, shimmies it after it happens, right? We only record the the seismic disturbance after the fact. And we only recognize it after the fact. And so it's with that sort of distance that I think I can, I can achieve that distance. This is a better way to say it. I can achieve the distance on the self by incorporating some of that knowledge, that research, that data, that more distant sort of information. That pushes, pushes the book, I think, into letting, letting the personal story situate itself in, in something a little bit bigger and for both stories to be told um, with more perspective, I think, than I would have gotten had I just written it straight from, you know, this happened to me when I was nine, this happened to me when I was 11, this happened to me when I was 14. Um, I think that pushing it away a little bit helped me see it in a new light in this new landscape. I think it's it's not just another story of growing up, right? I, that's embedded uh, as you're saying in this, but we see alongside kind of the memories that that one might expect in a in a memoir, things like 
you know, articles that presumably you found online or in a magazine, NPR reports, there are rules, there are recipes, there are the odd facts about water or equations about elements. Um, there are old letters that pop in and out. There are even some tables uh, where you can compare certain sorts of things. And I think, you know, you've, you've been talking about the, the insights that the book comes to and, uh, and I think that there's also a generosity in the way that the book's put together that when you bring these different perspectives into just kind of what it means to grow up and what it means to be a person, um, there's room for the reader to turn over a lot of the things that you're presenting. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of questions left undone that I think implicate and uh, invite the reader to think about who we are in ways that I wouldn't expect in encountering a memoir if I imagined a memoir as a story about a person. Well, and, you know, it comes through, uh, I think, a lot of it in terms of ways that we assume certain uh, certain things will affect children. So alcoholism will affect children in this one way, and having sex too early will affect children this other way. And, again, this comes from a pretty rebellious spirit that says, yeah, maybe there are some – there's always – bad things that come from being raised by a, being raised by an alcoholic and there's always bad things about having sex too young and being you know too interested in what boys think about you but I also wanted to um, see these things in a different way like I don't have that sort of standard belief system that says okay if you you know if, if you're raised by an alcoholic you must join Al-Anon I, have, I, I think it's much more complicated than that um, that the and the, the reason to bring in those rules uh, the the you know, Utah liquor laws or the um, images of the uh, fizzle landslide or um, the, the recipes is for is to sort of mess up that that standard thinking that this you know if this happens if a happens to you then b uh then you must do b so c results and that things are not such an equation i think another reason to bring in those extraneous uh materials that sort of multimedia um interruption a lot of it is uh when when you're working on pretty an emotional behavior or sorry emotional experiences, sometimes you just need a break from yourself. Um, it, it, it might be a, a bit of a coping mechanism. That used to be how I thought about it for sure. But the more I've been thinking about how memoir works or how we, or how nonfiction works is that it's in some way you have to dissociate from yourself. You cannot re-experience all of the, uh, all of your childhood again, um, without sort of separating from the character you're creating and creating this narrator type person who's watching the character move around on the page. That's a really weird thing to happen in your brain. Um, and I think a lot of the ability to do that comes from some early, you know, trauma that I could dissociate and see it sort of see my family as if on TV and I watched them, including me walk around and, and behave in a certain way. I think there's, you know, there, uh, my colleague, Laura Gray Rosendell wrote a book called college girl and, and the, book, the first half of the book is about her uh, being raped in a college. 
and how she calls herself college girl for years instead of saying I. She actually uses the phrase college girl. And the second half of the book is about how she reconciles that college girl back into the self, into the into the I point of view. I think it's a great study, and as well as a great book, but a great study in how memoirs can uh, how how they can work and how you can make them both artistic and emotive as well as smart about how the brain works and about how we see ourselves. So my strategy, as opposed to breaking the book into two halves like Laura Gray Rosendale did, is to use that research as a kind of lens or to use that those um, imported bits of material straight from, from the web to say, look, we are looking at this individual through a culture, right? We're looking at them through a list of rules or we're looking at them through a recipe for this is how you make humans, you know, this is how you make fish, this is how you make humans. And by bringing those multiple lenses into the, into the book, I feel the self becomes multiple. It's not no longer just Nicole Walker writes about Nicole Walker growing up. It's like, oh, here's a girl on the scene, and we see her through um, through the eyes of a landscape, uh, through a, or uh, we see her through the eyes of uh, a cougar, or we see her through the eyes of the story of the wolves. Um, that these these. Per- these different perspectives are insisted upon, I think, because of the, the material, the extraneous material that's brought in. And I, I would say, that I would add to that, so, so yes, absolutely, there are these uh, very weighty matters that come up in the book. I mean, that there's violence, um, there's a deep investigation of desire and how that works. I think, you know, kind of how how as a child we reckon with our our parents and try to to make sense of that legacy one of the lenses one of the vantage points certainly is a very dry sense of humor in which you will ask the reader things like would you rather be a grain of sand that has resulted from erosion or would you rather be built up from brine shrimp poop and you just lay that out there so it it seems to me like you're not uh you're not beyond taking a certain kind of wink at some of this material even as you move forward with it Absolutely. And that's a very, uh, that's probably just part of my personality. I'm just generally an optimistic person. I think most things are funny. You know, even traumatic events with uh, some distance, again, is just kind of, you know, again, dry, uh, ironic, uh, wry, like, I I can't believe this is the way the world works, but this is the way the world works. Um, And, uh, you know, you can't try for that kind of uh, humor, I don't think. It's it's a matter, again, I I, uh, attribute a lot to the method of the book. Like, I don't think, again, if I'd written it as a straight memoir, it it would have been, I think, so much more serious. But, you know, if you're jumping around and talking about fish trying to get up a fish ladder and talking about the thistle landslide and your hernia operation, and then 15 pages later, you're talking about, you know, the way that your mom... your fellow students were throwing snowballs at your at your mom. Um, that you're like, by bringing all of those scenes sort of together in your mind at the same time, there's some sort of absurdity to it. Like this is what the, this is a crazy world. And it's a crazy life, and uh, the, the the humor I think comes from from bringing all of those things together in a way that is not a, not a traditional narrative arc, uh, but, but through the, th- through the benefits, I think of what would be more a poetry sensibility that, that associative leap um, allows for, for those funky things to jump in. And to me, that's sort of where the humor comes from. 
I would say you know, the essayist in me thinks, well, that's how the mind works, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I, I think we, we've given a kind of description. If I were listening at this, this point, I might love to hear a small excerpt from the book just so I could give a, a taste of the thing itself. Would you be willing to read a, a passage or two for us? I would, Eric. You know, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this essay, uh, uh, even though it's not the one I generally read when I go to readings. I like to read the final essay in the book, um, Where the Wild Things Are, because it's shocking and people are like, I can't believe she's talking about this I'm in front of her mother. I read it in front of my mom. My poor mother has suffered deeply. Um, you know, and I'll read it. And it, the people are wrapped with attention at that essay, but it goes on for about 20 pages. Um, and it, I, I think it sort of sums up the book in a lot of ways. So I will let the, the, uh, the audience maybe pick up the book and see if they uh, are interested in reading that last essay. But I was going to read uh, a little bit from this essay, Thistle Landslide, because I think it does a good job of describe of, of showing how, as you so beautifully put it, how the uh, this is a memoir of the landscape or a geologic investigation of the body. This is uh, the Thistle Landslide. What has the power to reshape? Outside sources, usually, backhoes and Big Macs, concrete and liposuction. But what can change topography from the inside? For instance, a hernia is a weakness in the wall of the abdomen. Some hernias are present from birth, while others develop later in life, often as a result of persistent straining. Hernias tend to occur at places where there is a natural weakness in the wall of the abdomen, such as in the groin, called inguinal hernias. Hernias occur in both men and women, although inguinal hernias are much more common in men. Another example of change made from the inside. The thistle landslide began, began moving in the spring of 1983 in response to groundwater buildup from heavy rains the previous September and the melting snowpack for the winter of 1982 to 1983. The ground became saturated with water, destabilizing rock and dirt from underneath. Within a few weeks, the landslide dammed the Spanish Fork, obliterating U.S. Highway 6 and the main line of Denver and the Rio Grande Western Railroad. The town of Thistle was inundated under the floodwaters rising behind the landslide dam. Total costs incurred, direct and indirect, by this landslide exceeded $400 million, the most costly single landslide event in U.S. history. Cause. When I was three, my twin sisters were born, apparently, in a moment of iconographic cuteness. I asked my grandmother when I found out they were twins, why so many? Indeed. Many times my mom and dad must have asked themselves that same question. I can't imagine how they changed two sets of diapers or how either parent slept when one twin would fall asleep just as the other woke up or how they kept track of how many bites of applesauce each one ate. I always imagined my mother breastfeeding both of them at the same time. She said she did once in a while. But unlike the image of my head, in my head of two babies cradled in her arms, crossing her chest, she showed me how she held them, hands and head, Heads in hands, elbows wide to her feet, feet pointed outward. It's called the football position. My mom must have felt like a tapped keg. Send them up, she would say, and the twins would drain her double Ds down to a deflated C, like football players who drain their 40s on Friday nights. I did, however, after my initial surprise, adapt to their twinness quickly. When my mom wants to let me know how much she appreciates me, she reminds me of how I'd run and get their bottles or find them a blanket. I thought the twins were super fun dolls. 
I like to hold them in the cute way with their feet crossing in front of me, their heads in the crook of my elbows like koalas in the crutch of bamboo. When they were older, I started to carry them everywhere, even more koala-esque. I carried one little twin in my arms and let one climb onto my back. We'd go up the stairs and down the stairs, outside into the backyard and up the rock path my dad built to the garden and down the deck and then across the street to where my mom played bridge and where she would tell me to put them down for once. You're old enough to walk. I was going to break my back. But I loved doing it. I loved that they loved it. I played favorites alternating daily, letting the best one of the day, the one who smiled at me the most or made the best joke or gave me half of her peanut butter cup, ride in my arms. I tried to be fair and trade back and back for front evenly, but that was harder to keep track of than how many bites of applesauce each one ate. Cause. In 1983, there was a big flood that affected all of the northern Utah, a flood that transformed the landscape, even the cityscape. The concrete man-made roads and bridges buckled and broke as the snow melted and headed toward the Great Salt Lake any way it wanted, channeled riverbed, waterway be damned. Hills came down and rivers overflowed. City Creek, Salt Lake City's main water source, was redirected over ground and around the downtown to State Street, an eight-lane major thoroughfare. Now, 20 years later, I live right by City Creek, and I wonder where the water has gone. It comes down the canyon, runs into the park, and then disappears. How could that same river have possibly ended up in the middle of the road teenagers dragged on Saturday night? In 1983, it was lined with sandbags. People fished from the sidewalk. One of the few places permanently affected by the landslide was Thistle, Utah. Thistle, in the first place, was already practically ghostly by 1983. As a railroad town, it had ebbed and flowed with Union Pacific's tides. The apex of its population stood at 600 people in the early 1900s. By the time the landslide hit, Union Pacific was mostly happy to find a way out of the money-losing line. As the speed of locomotives had increased, the need for stopovers and refills in small depot towns had lessened. By 1983, only 50 people called this a home. Symptom. I was showering in my mom and dad's bathroom when my mom opened the shower curtain to hand me a washcloth and noticed the lump. She asked how long it had been there. I did not like her looking at my vagina. I told her as much. But she kept looking anyway. I told her I was okay and showed her my neat trick. If you pushed on the lump, it went away. I thought she would like that. It was a little like ironing. Press it down and the protruding wrinkle goes away. She did not like it. She called the doctor. Symptom. For a while, those floods transformed the riverbeds and the canyon floors, but the most dramatic changes came from underneath. As the water sopped into the sandy ground far above in the mountains, the underlying valley aquifers began to fill. The aquifer just above thistle filled to the brink, and then it bubbled over like any lid that tries too hold to hold the contents of its burgeoning cup. The land, the, the land that capped the groundwater spectacularly split from the underlying ground and steamed right in the, into the town of thistle. Thistle, dry, pokey. Brittle. Nothing went about it. Not usually. Not until 1983 when the rules changed and the lid was no longer tight and the cup no longer big enough and the whole side of the mountain shifted its weight up and over then down on the town of Thistle. And then the essay goes on to describe how Thistle really did uh, become a ruined town, uh, which is paired with the hernia surgery I, I eventually had to have. And the idea that maybe that sort of exposure early on made me, you know, particularly immodest possibly later in life. 
<laughs> and what I love is the very next sentence is how literally can you take the metaphor between the land and the body? And so, you know, the book is constantly interested in how it goes about doing what it's doing. There, there's not much naivete in many ways here. <laughs> Absolutely. I should have read that line, Eric. Uh, but it's, it's exactly, you know, it's, it's, it, it is a self-conscious memoir, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. And that self-consciousness, you know, as, as the book progresses is, is much more investigated. You know, what makes somebody self-conscious? As you said earlier, you know what what makes people desire uh, de- desire a certain kind of life or desire certain people. Um, I, f- I find that or desire uh, different places to live. Um, in the you know at the end of the book in the where the wild things are essay, which is a pretty big leap in time, right? I mean, this book goes from this age, you know, about ten until uh, you know twenty eight years old and um, pregnant with my daughter and. Um, and the difficulty in in the, trying to see, okay, how much am I imprinting all of this self-consciousness onto my daughter? How much am I imprinting all of this desire onto my daughter? How do you how do you bring another entity, a consciousness, into this world, knowing that, you know, as, as ironic and wry and dry humorly you might take it now, that at the time it was not exactly pleasant. Uh, how do you bring, you know, a grain of sand into the world and say, here, here, tectonic plates, press against this. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it, the, the book ends with that question. Uh, what do you do? What do you do next? And do you spend your whole life trying to protect that grain of sand? You know, no. Is my is my final answer, but uh, but the questions about my own childhood percolate, I think, in that final essay, which is why I think it makes it a good cap and a good transition for for my next works. Well, I I do not want to give away that last essay because I think it's it's a magnificent essay, but I will say that it's nervier. Then you're describing it. I, I've, you know, had friends who have recently had babies and, th- and they worry, will I pass along my neuroses and how will I protect my daughter or my son from the world? Not many of them will go into some of the dangers that you <laughs> actually imagine and think through quite, you know, what is it like to look at the desire from the perspective of a child molester? That's some nervy stuff. Well, and it's, you know, it's, it's important again to get back to this idea of, of perspective and why, why the, uh, research elements are important to the book and why the imported, you know, sort of, uh, found material makes its way into the book is I think it's important to look at everything from different perspectives. And that essay does have, you know, that, that section, um, where you change point of view and the he turns into a she and an it, and they go back and forth. And it does have the point of view of a child molester. Um, but it, uh, because I think, how do you, how do we know how we can only see, I think, uh, the, the whole picture if we look at it from a lot of, uh, point of view. I think, you know, I'm heavily influenced by the cubists, I guess. <laughs> Well, it certainly comes in. I, I guess that that would be one good way to describe the book, actually, now that it occurs to me. I, I want to go back to your poor mother, as you you yes. described her just a second ago. So as I was preparing for the interview, I was uh, reading around, and apparently you, I, I found out that you had allowed your, your mother and your sister to read parts of the book while it was in process to see what they thought. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you know, you have to have a, a strong family that has a similar uh, attitude to the world as you to to uh, let this happen. I think because I didn't want you know them to go in and say no, you cannot 
talk about me, no, delete this. I wanted them to have sort of first dibs over how they, uh, over, over their reaction to, to the book. Um, and so, you know, my sisters read it and they're so supportive and they've read everything I've written and they, you know, they give me feedback. Um, in my mom's case, you know, she can get sort of silent sometimes, uh, when, when I, when I gave, give her material and she says, Oh, I love it, but she doesn't go into the text in particular. And so, um, before I sent this, you know, as a final draft to my publisher, I asked my mom to edit it. And because first of all, she is an English major, so she has very good grammatical skills. And second of all, I thought if she gets into the book uh, from that sort of perspective, she will be able to encounter it with that same sort of distance that I feel that as a writer, you can, you can take on it. And I think it worked to some degree. I mean, she's much more, um, she, she brought me into uh, her book club to talk about the book. She's uh, gone to every reading that's been anywhere near uh, Salt Lake City. She's, you know, had had parties for me to, to uh, sell the book. I think she's been so supportive of it, even though, you know, she's featured in it. She's featured, I think, generally positively, but there's still parts, you know, that you don't necessarily want your book club friends to know about and she's been like forget it this is my daughter this is her book and this is the uh, comma splice that I fixed um, and I think in doing that it made gave her some ownership to it that that made her feel like she was in control of the situation and not just sort of smacked around by the spine of the book I, I think it's it's just a wonderful uh counter example or counter model to the to the kind of myth that surrounds the writing of the memoir, especially a memoir that might deal with family hardships or family secrets about, you know, truth telling and pain and, you know, the need for self-protection. I mean, I think um, suddenly you see a writer who's like, I'm going to write this and not only am I going to write this, but I'm going to have kind of the, the moral openness to invite people who are in it to contribute before it's done. Um, and I think there's a kind of generosity of spirit there in the creation of the book itself. Well, and I have to thank that you know them for being so generous to do it. And again, it goes along with the, with that that same sort of aesthetic that the more perspectives, the better. Um, so you know, in a lot of ways, they'll help, and they'll they'll say, "Oh, don't you remember that one time?" Blah blah blah. Like, oh, I totally forgot about that. Um, and I, you know, it gives more detail and, and richness to the book. I think uh, because of it. And it, it flies nicely into the face of kind of the, the romantic with a capital R myth of the author as someone who cuts themselves off from the world and creates their perfect art object and, you know, sends it out um, to be praised. I think, it, you know, essays, to, in my experience, are messy things and kind of it's, it's much nicer to throw a party when you make them. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's a testament too to the sort of workshop model, which, you know, is derided often enough, but I think is uh, ridiculously derided because just like everything, it's a collaborative experience. Living in the world is collaborative. Writing about it is collaborative. And, uh, you know, one thing I miss more than anything is having that workshop to bounce things off of people and to say, what is your reaction to this? You know, writing in a um, hollow box is not entirely process of writing it's the it's the one half and waiting for the reader is 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 uh the part that goes away when you graduate from your you know writing program and something that i think my students really appreciate that the idea that i 
this is my audience. I will at least have 12 people as an audience in my lifetime. Yay. <laughs> it is it's very heartening, especially for young writers. Exactly. Uh, but even for older writers. Uh, I at last, I got a Goodreads review. Ah, uh, someone paid attention. <laughs> exactly. Again, it's like people like you, I'm like, oh my goodness, thank you so much for reading my book, let alone doing this interview. It's pretty great. <laughs> well, you had mentioned a moment ago that uh, this book has set you up very nicely for the, the project that you're working on next. Uh, what can readers expect after the memoir? Well, there, I have another memoir-like book um, that I'm that I'm finishing that does um, goes sort of directly answers some of the questions in the last essay in the book, where the wild things are, and talks about you know how do you raise kids with uh, so much advice from the internet, from what to feed them to how to um, play with them interactively um, for at least forty five minutes a day, um, including you know, uh, but really based on this idea of food and how we manipulate food and worry about food and worry about. Um, um, food production, and you're sort of building these children out of food. So it has that same sort of uh, absurdity, I think, about it as as Quench does. Um, it, it's called Salmon of the Apocalypse, and it wonders why, why would you bring? Why would you have children? When now everything you do is is a question mark as opposed to a certainty, and you're never never sure if this is you know is this too much salt or is this too much sugar or how oh, we can just eat raspberries for the rest of our lives. Um, and that idea of, of it's always uh, impending disaster. No matter what you choose, you you will choose wrong. Uh, and I sort of, you know, that again, love that aesthetic that you're doomed anyway, so you might as well sort of just sit down and enjoy it. Um, and then I'm another book called Microcosm that's much different. Um, it's not as memoiristic, and it's it's more challenging in that way because it, it uses much more of the research uh, elements to make an argument about how the tiny things in our lives. Um, are really the answer to some of our larger questions. So it's an environmental book in some ways, talking about how, for instance, uh, microorganisms, if you put them in polluted water, polluted by fertilizer runoff that has too much, too many nitrates in it, the, the microorganisms can turn the nitrates into nitrogen oxide. But, of course, I'm still me, and so stories about my worries and my obsessions pop in all the time and interrupt that research. So it's almost an inverse of the way that I wrote Quench, is that I begin with the research, and then I'm like, but what about me? Let's talk about me some more. Um, and then in, interrupted uh, by these tiny micro-essays. So, again, it's another book where the, process, or the, the form of the book is somewhat the content. So there's these long essays, these big ideas, but the really tiny essays are the ones that are, that are trying to answer those big questions. These tiny ideas. Well, let me let me ask you a question as a as a friendly skeptic and fellow essayist who finds yes. this question directed at, 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 at himself. Um, so we certainly live in an age of specialty. There there are certainly specialists out there who are are trafficking in information about microorganisms and how they work and what they do and what we should be doing and how we should be utilizing them. And uh, here you are, the essayist. Right, and you're taking up this topic, and not only doing, say, science writing that popularizes the work that true scientists are doing, uh, but you're willing to sprinkle in some personal stories along with this, you know, serious research. Uh, I'll, I'll say it as I've gotten it before: How dare you, Nicole? 
Absolutely. And I think I get that a lot. Like, what do you think you're talking about? My feeling is the messier I make it, the more I make it my own. Uh, Jennifer Sinor has this great essay uh, in that flash uh, nonfiction book that uh, from Rose Metal Press that Dinty Moore put together. And she says that voice, you know, we talk about atmosphere and we talk about mood and tone and sentence length and word choice is all elements of voice. But she has this brilliant moment where she says, voice comes from knowing your subject well. And I love that idea. Um, and yet, you know, when I'm working on this science stuff, I know this not at all. And so to make it so I have a voice and so that I, I own it, I do have to mess it up. And so I try, I try not to spin it as a scientific book about science, but in fact, a investigation about how, how, how we adapt or how even I adapt to the difficulties of having to, you know, ride my bicycle to work today instead of ride my car, drive my car. Um, that these small, these small everyday occurrences, um, that's the stuff I know, right? That's the stuff that I can own and voice. And so to get to that material and to pretend I own it or to approximate owning it or get anywhere near it, I have to use that, that avenue of, of the memoir or the essay and say, this is, this is the stuff I do. And I can get close to it, um, and I have to back away, you know. But I'll come to it again from another perspective and see if I can if I can approach it at all and, into making it make sense, not just for me, but for other people, you know. Not make the science make sense, but the big idea that small things are important, which is again, you know, comes from the, the poet's perspective. That the you know, pay attention to the every moment. Um, sort of a even Buddhist thought that. If, if you can live in the moment, the big questions fall away um, or the big questions answer themselves, possibly. Uh, anyway. Yes, I, I often think scholarship will, will usually start at the moment that the mess has been solved and the essay is just really happy to wade into the mess as it exists and that's where most of us live anyway. Exactly. Exactly. That 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 uh, I feel I, I sense community in that mess. Like, look at all this disaster. And that you know, there's so you want to show some that you have some structural analysis about about that disaster. But in the in the end, the mess is is um, the best meeting ground I can find. Nicole Walker, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Eric. This has been great. I appreciate it, and I look forward to talking with you more in the future. This is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Nicole Walker, author of Quench Your Thirst with Salt on the New Books Network.